The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 61, to the chief musician, on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Selah. <coughs> for you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. Okay, we are in the final chapter of the book of Esther. It's a very long, complicated chapter, and uh, so I'm going to read you the verses, and then we'll get into the sermon. Chapter 10 of Esther, and King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea in Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. In the book of Esther, there's one thing that we need to understand, and that is the seven dispensations of time. Okay, I'm going to go through them very quickly. I've written them on the board for you. There are seven dispensations according to the dispensational model of theology. You have covenantalism. You've got dispensationalism. You've got all of these varied views on theology. Dispensationalism is correct, and it is found laid out in the book of Esther. Okay, and I want you to know that as we go through the book of Esther and I go through the seven dispensations, I want you to realize that they are recorded in the order that the book of Esther is written. It's not like we're jumping around making stuff up, okay? <laughs> the first dispensation is innocence. That was man in the Garden of Eden. And then conscience, that was man after the fall, okay? Then we have government. That came after the flood of Noah. And then came promise, which was at the time of Abraham. And from there, we have the law. That's the law of Moses. That's the fifth dispensation. And then the sixth is grace. And if you noticed, I put a uh, uh, arrow between promise and grace because one leads to another. Okay, the law is something that the Lord is working through to get us to grace. But he's already made the promise in Abraham. And we'll talk about that when we get to our second thought today. And then the final dispensation is millennium. Now, if you look on the other side of what I've put there, I have an asterisk next to law and an asterisk next to grace. The book of Esther deals almost solely with the law and with grace. Okay. However, the millennium is also a high point feature of it, but it's a very short high point feature of it, which is chapter 10 of three verses. So as long as you understand that when you are debating people about whether dispensationalism is true, if it's correct, if it's not, all you need to do is send them to the Superior Word archive of the Esther sermons and tell them to start at the beginning and then to watch the final sermon, and they will understand that God has revealed dispensationalism in 
the book of Esther, as he did with the life of Jacob some time ago. So here we go. Esther, like Ruth or Jonah, is a book which records events that really occurred. Like Ruth, it is one of the historical writings, but like Jonah and even Ruth, it is also a book which prophetically looks forward while also being given in types and shadows of other things. But Esther doesn't look just forward. It also looks back on history. And through the real events that it records, it gives us a snapshot of all of redemptive history, but most especially in how it deals with the Jews. Now that you understand this, I want to tell you that if you are, you know, moderately sound in your theology and you know your Bible to some extent, this is still going to be a very complicated sermon, okay? You're probably going to have to go back and read it and read your whole Bible four or five times before you grasp what's going on. I would give this an eight out of ten on complicated material, but it's what it is, okay? To insert the church into Esther would be to mischaracterize the symbolism of what we are being shown. Many people will do that with the book of Esther. They will say, well, this points to the church in this way, and this points to the church in that way. It is true that the church is included in one of the seven dispensations of time, but the church deals with both Jew and Gentile. Rather than focus on the Gentiles during the dispensation of grace, Esther looks at how Jews, as a people, have responded to that period. There are enemies, and then there are enemies. Can we not say that a state of enmity exists between Jesus Christ and the unbelieving Jewish people of today? Of course we can. If we deny this, we are naive in how we view Scripture. And yet, there are those out there who are completely foolhardy in this regard. They claim that the Jews are saved through their adherence to the law of Moses. This is known as dual covenant theology. It is heretical and it is dangerous. And more, it is specifically refuted by an understanding of what the book of Esther is showing us. Paul is very clear when he speaks of the enemies of the cross of Christ, including all Jew and Gentile who have rejected his work. Death is an enemy. But death is merely the result of sin. Therefore, sin is an enemy. But sin is the result of disobedience to law. The book of Leviticus, speaking of the law, says that the man who does the things of the law will live. However, nobody but God can do the things of the law. If we could, we wouldn't need Jesus. Thus, the law, though it is good, actually acts as an enemy to us because of our sin nature. And the law exists. Just as the law in the Garden of Eden was given and it led to the fall, the law of Moses does the same. The law exists and there is nothing that we can do about it. We are defeated as foes before the law, but for Christ Jesus. Our text verse is from 2 Samuel 14. It is the 14th verse. And I didn't plan it this way. I just put in the next Sergio and wrote a video today. And Sergio quoted this verse in his video that we watched before the church. So I like how things like that happen in life. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. If the law was all there was, it would be a futile existence indeed, especially because the law is God's standard. It is what we must meet in order to be granted that life which is promised in Leviticus 18. The book of Esther is a type and a shadow of what God has done in redemptive history. 
and it reveals the means devised by God to bring back his banished ones. John Lang caught on to this in a very limited way, and from his commentary on Esther chapter 9, we read these words. We would be more just to Esther, to the Jews spoken of in our book, and to the book itself, if... In what was done in Shushan, as well as in all of Persia, we would see an anticipation of the judgments connected and parallel with the progress of the kingdom of God on earth, and especially of the final judgment. If the animus of the Old Testament with respect to the destruction of enemies seems to us terribly vindictive rather than mild, yet this may not only be excusable but may even be a prophetic intimation, the fact so prominently and emphatically expressed in the present instance that the Jews did not stretch out their hands after the goods, the spoil of their enemies, proves to us that they meant to conduct this contest as a measure of self-protection, or better, as a holy war, the sole purpose of which was the removal of their enemies." The removal of their enemies. Well said, John Lang. But just who are the enemies being pictured in this book? And who then is the great enemy Haman picturing? And even more, the ten sons of Haman were counted as the enemies of the Jews as well. Other than a list of names, we know nothing more about them than that they were his sons and that there were ten of them. And yet Esther felt it necessary that they be hung for all to see after they had been killed. And more, the Lord specifically included these details in his word. Why? Who is the great enemy of the Jews today? Esther, even without answers to these questions, has been a marvelous adventure. But the questions beg for us to answer them, and so we will. I pray that what is presented to you today is wholly in accord with his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is the exaltation of Mordecai. It's verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. The narrative now jumps suddenly from the accounts of what occurred on Purim and how the celebration was mandated to a statement concerning the imposition of tribute on the land by King Ahasuerus. It seems entirely out of place, stating the words of this verse now. It is as if it's haphazardly tossed in here without any anchoring in the narrative at all. In fact, the great scholars, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, find it perplexing enough to state that chapter 10 is simply an appendix to the history already presented, and that it has been improperly separated from the preceding chapter. But such is not the case. Though connected to what has been presented, it is also a completely different thought that has its own unique purpose and design. The word used, mas, or tribute, is elsewhere consistently translated as forced labor. Thus, it is assumed that this forced labor equates to the levying of a tribute upon the lands under the authority of the empire. For the Persian Empire, the islands mentioned would be those which are found in the Aegean Sea. The reason for the tribute is unstated, but because it follows directly after the war between the Jews and the nations, it can be assumed that the war was actually so great that the empire required the tribute in order to rebuild, repair, and redirect. Thus, a tribute was levied in order to overcome the effects of what had occurred. 
It appears that Ahasuerus is the main subject of the verse, but in showing that he had such great power and authority to impose such a massive tribute upon the realm, it then demonstrates that his chosen royal vizier, Mordecai, had risen to a position of complete authority and greatness in all of the realm. In other words, though Ahasuerus is the subject of the verse itself, it is actually a statement concerning the greatness of Mordecai. This is notably revealed in the next words, verse 2. Now all the acts of his power and his might. These words confirm that the true subject of verse 1 is Mordecai. First, it says the acts of his power. The word tokef, or power, was first seen in the Bible in verse 929, which said, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority, tokef, to confirm this second letter about Purim. The authority of Ahasuerus is implicitly also the authority of Mordecai. He bears the royal signet, and thus he possesses the power. This is then revealed in the next words. Verse 2 continues, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai. Here we have the second and final use of the word parasha, or account, in the Bible. It signifies an exposition or a declaration. Nowadays, and this is important, it refers to a section of a biblical book, something like our chapter divisions in the Bible. The parasha forms the basis for the reading of scripture in Jewish synagogues. The greatness of Mordecai is especially noted in conjunction with the acts of power and might which stem from the king himself. Thus one can see that the focus is on him, and it is he who wields the authority because of the position that he fills. Verse 2 continues, to which the king advanced him. In these words, there is the idea that in exalting Mordecai, the king himself is also exalted. One is not robbing the other of glory, but he compliments the king because of his own greatness. Does that sound like anybody else to you? Mm -hmm. It is therefore appropriate that as the record of the king is recorded, the record of the king's right-hand man would also be so recorded. Verse 2 continues, Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea in Persia? The book of the chronicles of the kings is said to not only contain the record of King Ahasuerus, but it also chronicles the deeds of Mordecai, relaying that he also possessed kingly power. Although he is positionally second, he bears the dignity and authority that stems from the kingly throne. It is the logical conclusion to the statement that he is recorded in these writings. Here, the empire is noted for the very first time in the book of Esther as Medea and Persia rather than Persia and Medea. Did anybody catch that one? Okay, it's important. Medea is named from Madai, the son of Japheth. The word is associated with the word Madad, or measure. Thus, Medea would signify measure. Persia, without all of the lengthy details, would signify divisions. As chapter 10 is such a short one, Sergio ran an acrostic search. He noted that verse 2 forms a very interesting sentence, which is derived from forward and backward acrostics formed from the first letters. The words say, Humtu vetamu vegam gia akaskehe ad hadas hilam ve milah. They were killed and destroyed, and also the dark anger was cured until Myrtle, and the word is here. It doesn't seem to make any sense, but it is actually a very beautiful thought. The acrostic is an amazing parallel to the account itself, especially what it is picturing. 
Now, in understanding that Mordecai bears full authority, as is recorded in the Chronicles, the book of Esther closes out with words of shalom, words of peace. Verse 3, for Mordecai the Jew. There is an immediate stress on the fact that Mordecai is a Jew. He is not a Mede or a Persian, but a Jew who has been exalted in the realm. He didn't convert from his Jewishness in order to accept the appointment. Instead, he remained a Jew. Does that sound like anybody that says, well, Jesus isn't a Jew? You hear that all the time. He remained a Jew, and it's being stressed in this verse. It is he who, verse 3 continues, was second to King Ahasuerus. The closing of the narrative shows that a Jew holds the position second to the king alone. This means that Mordecai held a representative position among his people. And not only was he in the exalted position, but his people remained despite having faced complete annihilation. It is he who rescued them, and it is he who then was exalted in their eyes, as it says, verse 3 continues, and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren. Though Mordecai was at one time just considered another Jew and one who was actually kept in obscurity in his relation to Esther, he eventually was realized for his greatness, and he became great among his own people. Anybody seeing a parallel here? They openly received him as being great among them. He had always been in Shushan, the lily, but he remained obscure among the Jews until the time that he was needed to rescue them. The hidden Lord then acted, revealing his plan and the calling of Mordecai to his time of recognition among his people. From that point on, he was. Verse 3 finishes our chapter and the book with these words, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. The Hebrew literally reads, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. The two thoughts are placed in parallel, though. And so seed isn't speaking of his posterity, but his countrymen as if sons. Sons. Closing out the book are two acrostics. First, in the beginning of the verse, there is an acrostic that forms the word male, or completeness. Then there is another acrostic with the words kama mehem. It is a question followed by an answer. How many of them? The answer is completely. Secondly, the next acrostic says, in order, beshuvi shlomi, or in my return is peace. The next word in the acrostic would add another yud, and it would say, beshuvi shlomi, or in my return is my peace. It can be either way. In my return is peace, or in my return is my peace. Considering the surrounding text, it is a rather remarkable acrostic, which matches the intent of what is said in the verse itself. Remember it said that he sought the peace of his brethren? So it matches the external thought of the verse itself. In fact, Sergio never read the verses. He just searched for the acrostics and then laid them out. When I told him how precisely they matched the surrounding verses which speak of peace to Mordecai's countrymen, he was actually astonished. Finally, many of the acrostic words in this verse form the same concept backward and forward. A theme is repeating as a stress to the story itself. Now, with all of the book analyzed, the obvious question is, is there anything beyond the surface story that the Lord is telling us? Esther is the last book of the Old Testament historical writings. Esther is the last book of the Old Testament historical writings. There are different divisions in the Old Testament. You've got the law, you've got the prophets, you've got the history writings, you've got the writings of wisdom. It is the last book in the Old Testament historical writings. Therefore, 
it would make sense that what is recorded here would parallel the final historical account of Scripture itself. It is with that thought in mind that we will all too briefly review the book of Esther from a pictorial perspective of history itself. Exalted to the right hand of God, all power and authority to act in his name in every nation, everywhere that man does trod. His power is unlimited, as is his glory and fame. To the ends of the earth and to the islands of the sea, throughout all places, his power and authority are known. His mighty deeds are recorded, oh, so carefully, so that of them to all people they may be shown. He is good to his people, and to them he speaks words of peace, and in him his people shall forever delight. His greatness is eternal, never shall it cease. For the ages of ages in him we shall delight. Our second thought today is dispensations. This book is orderly, as I said, and it follows the pattern exactly of the seven dispensations as they are laid out in history. I'm going to take you, before we get into our analysis of this, to Galatians 4, and I'm going to read you from Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. It says there, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic, Paul says. For these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now, even to this day, Jerusalem, which is now, they are under law, they are in bondage. That's what he's saying there. Which is now and is in bondage with her children. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman but of the free. In Galatians 4, Paul says the two wives of Abraham are symbolic of the two covenants. Esther follows this same remarkable symbolism, showing it from another angle. The book of Esther began with a statement concerning the reign of Ahasuerus over the entire realm of the empire. It then ended with a statement concerning the king imposing tribute on all the land and islands of the sea. But it includes the addition of the greatness of Mordecai. During the story, however, there was a time when the enemy of the Jews held that same position, didn't he? From this, we can then see a history of the world itself, the dispensations of time in which the Bible is divided and which detail the plan of redemption, brought about through a particular group of people and a particular individual chosen to deliver them and be exalted among them. The book begins with the king in Shushan, or lily. The lily signifies great beauty and splendor. It is a favorite in the Song of Solomon, being used eight times in that little book. It is equated to magnificent glory by Jesus in Luke 12, verse 27. He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. 
They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And this is how Shushan is described right in chapter 1. The details of the palace were magnificent. It was a place of joy and feasting, beauty and royal splendor. There was harmony, just as there was in the Garden of Eden. It is the dispensation of one, innocence. But then there arose a problem. The king sent his seven servants to bring his bride before the people. She disobeyed his orders. It is a picture of the fall of man. Vashti pictures the state of disobedience leading to the fall. If you remember, it was conjectured rightly that the king had asked Vashti to come with her crown, but nothing else was mentioned. Thus she was naked, a picture of a sinless state. However, she hid herself from the king. It is reminiscent of Adam and his wife hiding in the garden from the Lord. Man was made lower than the angels, and he was created with glory and honor. But that crown was removed, and he was expelled from the presence of the Lord. Thus we see that Ahasuerus pictures the divine throne of God in Shushan, meaning paradise. Vashti signifies disobedience and a loss of access to that throne. It was not merely an offense against the king, but against the throne. The same is true with the fall of man. It was an offense against the ruling power of God. It thus resulted in the fall of man and his expulsion from the Lord's presence. At the fall, man was given authority over the woman in Genesis 3, verse 16. This is repeated in Esther 1, verse 22, where it said that each man should be master in his own house. It is the dispensation of two, conscience. After this came a new law to correct the situation which occurred with Vashti. A search would be made for a new queen to replace her. This is the dispensation of three, government. It is a time when man would be found in many people groups but in which a select line would be chosen out of them for the king's delight. Each people group is represented by the gathering of the virgins, but only one will be selected. It is thus an anticipation of the dispensation of promise, and which is realized in the selection of Esther. If you remember, the virgins were brought forth one at a time after being carefully evaluated and ready for their time with the king. There it said that each virgin was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. When Esther's time came to go before the king, it said of her that she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. Haggai represents the spirit of the Lord, directing the events, choosing the right person, think of Abraham, for the promise, and relaying what is pleasing to God. Esther was chosen by him. He attended to her until she was ready for her meeting, and he recommended what she should take before the king. However, she was given the choice. She could have taken whatever she desired, but her desire was to take what Haggai knew would please the king. It is a picture of free will being exercised in accord with God's will, and thus it is a picture of salvation by grace through faith. The grace was given to Esther through her unmerited selection, the faith was Esther's willingness to trust not in her own self, but in Haggai's words, and this led to her selection as queen. It is the call of Abraham, the dispensation of four, promise. Thus, whereas Vashti signifies disobedience and a loss of access to the throne, Esther signifies faithful obedience and access to the throne. Said otherwise, she represents the beauty of the gospel. Hence, emunah in Hebrew or pistis in Greek, both meaning faith, 
are feminine nouns, represented by Esther. In the next chapter, Haman comes flooding into the story. He is the enemy of the Jews. Everything about him shows him to be such. He is the son of Hamadatha, or the son of the one who works in darkness. He is also an Amalekite, an ancient enemy of the people of God. They are the people who ring off. They are those who are disconnected from the body and strive to disconnect the body. It is a fitting description of Haman and his coming actions. In the Exodus 17 sermon, we learned that the Amalekites represent false teachers, heretics, and other unregenerate people who are constantly attacking the weakest of the flock. Amalek is the natural man that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with these words. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. One must wonder how he fits in then. There is Esther representing access to the throne by grace through faith, and yet Haman obtained access to the throne, even the king's signet authority. What is he picturing? He is the dispensation of five, law, specifically its effect, which is a curse. As Paul says in Galatians 3, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. We will just call him law from here on out. It is he who passed the law which would lead to the destruction of the Jews. In the edict, he offered to pay the price of their lives with silver. Do you remember that? As I said then of Esther and Haman, one has found the favor of the king's heart and the other has found the favor of his throne. But we know that the law was given by God. How can that be contrary to the people of God? The answer is most especially found in Paul's letter to the Romans, though he speaks about it throughout all of his letters. From Romans 7, verses 7 through 11, we read these words. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Does anybody empathize with that one? I know I do. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. Death comes through the law. Instead of accepting Haman's silver, though, the king said to him, The money, the kesef, the silver, and the people are given to you. Do with them as seems good to you. In the Bible, silver pictures redemption. Consistently throughout the Bible, silver pictures redemption. Through the law would come redemption but not in the way expected. He said, you keep the silver. The approval of the law was filled with seemingly surplus words. If you remember, destroy, kill, annihilate, and young and old, little children and women. The cruel passion of the overuse of the words was to ensure that complete destruction of all Jews, without exception, is the ultimate goal and expectation. Law leads to death for all. The people of Israel were given the law, and the law set about to bring death, exactly as the account in Esther shows us, and exactly as Paul explains it in the book of Romans. 
it appears that Haman law would prevail. But it must be remembered that justification by grace through faith, meaning the gospel, came before the law, just as Esther was introduced before Haman. The importance of this is going to be explained later. With the coming of Haman, poor or lots were cast, and a date for the destruction of the Jews was set. The law was written, and it could not be revoked or pass away. Though it seemed out of control, the unseen Lord's guiding hand was still evident in Esther, just as it has been evident in history. The law was not a mistake, but a lesson, a guide, and a tutor. We must remember that access to the throne was already granted to Esther, but it was not through the law. It was by grace, through faith, exactly what happened with Abraham. The law also provides access to the throne, but it does it in a completely different way. Total, 100% absolute obedience, something that we are incapable of. What this means for now, though, is that law, represented by Haman, is actually the enemy of the Jews. The very thing that they trust in to this day is the very thing that is set to bring about their destruction. Ask any observant Jew if they believe this, and you're going to be called a lot more than just a heretic, I'll tell you that. And yet, this is what the Bible teaches, most specifically in the New Testament. However, it is seen interspersed all the way throughout the Old Testament as well. From Abraham to David to Isaiah to Habakkuk, it is the constant and yet wholly ignored theme which is presented to Israel. While considering the story thus far, what has been the status of Mordecai? Oh yeah, Mordecai. We've overlooked that guy. His status? He's remained relatively out of the picture. He is in Shushan, or Lily. He raised Esther as his own daughter. Remember that she pictures restored access to the throne by grace through faith. She pictures the beauty of the gospel. He also sat within the king's gate, and he charged Esther to not reveal her family or her people. That itself represents God's dispensational plan of redemption. Though the pattern is set in Abraham, the dispensation of promise, that stays concealed so that the dispensation of law may be worked through. It is, as Paul relays in Galatians, a necessary step intended to lead man to grace. In the Bible, the Sha'ar, or gate, where Mordecai is sitting is considered the place of judgment, where legal matters are resolved. So here is Mordecai, a Jew sitting in the place of judgment in Shushan. Just think of paradise, and here's the Lord sitting in his place of judgment. And now we need to remember why Haman decided to kill the Jews. It is because of Mordecai. His hatred of Mordecai led him to want to kill all of the Jews. If Mordecai represents Christ, and he does, then why would Haman, who represents law, hate him? It is because Christ is, as Paul says, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If law prevails, the people would continue to die because by the law is the knowledge of sin, and the wages of sin is death. Thus, the devil would retain authority over the world. Christ knew this, and so he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. In his fulfillment of it, the law would be rendered powerless. This is why Christ did not dispute the devil's claim that the whole world was his and he could give it to anyone he chose. Remember that at the beginning of the Gospels? Through law, over fallen man, this was a true statement. In destroying the Jews, the promise of God to the patriarchs would fail. The timing of the events of chapter 3 are important to understand. Mordecai would not bow to Haman before Haman 
got the signet ring. Thus, in picture, his actions were not disobedience to law, but they were obedience to promise, which is already established. Going back to Galatians 4 that I read you earlier. The ancient enmity between man and law goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Paul explains it in Romans 7 verse 9 with the words, I was once alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Here we can remember what was said in chapter 3 concerning the date of the casting of lots by Haman. It was the 13th of the month of Nisan, the day before the Passover. It was at this time, almost 500 years later, that the Jews who prided themselves in the law conspired to destroy Christ Jesus. As we saw, the number 13 is the number connected to rebellion, apostasy, defection, corruption, disintegration, revolution, and any other kindred idea. The law is an entity. It is not a person. But that entity is contrary to what has already been established in another entity. The gospel of grace through faith seen in Abraham and pictured by Esther. At the end of chapter 3, it was seen that the king, meaning the throne, and Haman, the law, sat down to drink. Law pictured by Haman is seemingly now the way of access to the throne. And that access is denied to all who are bound under it. With that, chapter 4 immediately opened with Mordecai tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes. With the law in place, Christ's destiny was sealed. Only through death could there be life. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. It is an apt enough description for us of Mordecai at this point. Right at the beginning of chapter 4, we read that when Mordecai learned all that happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. At that time, if you remember the sermon, we were shown a very specific parallel between Mordecai and Esau. In the Genesis sermons, Esau pictured fallen Adam. Jesus took on the nature of man, his humanity. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls him the second Adam. This then is the time of Jesus' incarnation. He thus is representative of Israel, having lost their blessing, and who is now facing a curse. Christ came from Israel, revealing his humanity and that he is a Jew under law. From there, Esther, the gospel, wants to know what is this distress concerning Mordecai, Christ. So she sent Hathak to find out what was troubling him. Mordecai, in turn, explains what has transpired, including the decree of Haman, meaning death through the law. He notes the parashah, or the exact amount of money that was offered for the destruction of the Jews. As I said, the word parashah, this is the first use of it back in that chapter, refers to a section of a biblical book, somewhat like our chapter divisions in the Bible. The parashah forms the basis for reading of scripture in Jewish synagogues to this day. It is the law as read by the Jews to this day, which bring them anticipated death. By law is the knowledge of sin, and the wages of sin is death. The law does not bring life, but death. But Mordecai went on, appealing for Esther to go before the king to petition for her people. Esther then responds that she has not been summoned by the king for an extended period of 30 days, and that to approach the king without being summoned would mean death. Was the gospel given during the time of promise, think of Abraham, still sufficient to bring her access to the throne? 
at that time it said, so they. Remember I told you everything was in the singular all the way through the chapter and all of a sudden it, it's in the plural. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Up until that point, everything was singular. All of a sudden in verse 12, it changed to the plural. The plural they is speaking of anyone who had thus far believed God's promises of faith in Messiah. Think of King David, for example. Messiah had been promised, and there is now a questioning of the gospel of grace through faith. Had it failed, would law prevail? But rather than being an inopportune time, it was the perfect time, 30 days. The number 30 signifies a higher degree, the perfection of divine order as marking the right moment. The chain of events had reached a time where a new direction would be sought. And so Mordecai, picturing Christ, instructs that it is the perfect time to rely on the gospel and not be destroyed by law. A marvelous change could be expected. It is at this time that Esther approaches the king without being summoned. Would she receive grace? The words testify to the fact. She obtained grace in his eyes. Yes, the just shall live by faith. And this was while law was still the law. In this, the offer of the king is made. What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Her only request? A banquet with the king, the throne, and Haman, the law. And that led to the petition for another banquet on the following day. But on that same day, the plot to hang Mordecai was also made. Haman's hatred of Mordecai is seen in the Jews of Jesus' time concerning Jesus Christ himself. They wanted him destroyed, so they plotted against him. They trusted their deeds under the law rather than what the law pointed to, Christ. This is what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 2. He said, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward and in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The gospel of grace through faith in Messiah was concealed in the Old Testament, just as Mordecai instructed Esther to conceal her identity. Now that time is ended. And so on the same night, the king's attention is directed to one whom he has decided to now honor. The time for the long overdue acknowledgement of approval has arrived. Calling in Haman, meaning the law, he asks, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Obviously, those who are under law feel they have earned the right to the king's favor. And so Haman thinks up the most outlandish and ostentatious display that he can think of to herald his victory. But then, it is Christ who is to be honored, not law. And so what happens? It is he, law, who lays the kingly attire on Mordecai, meaning Christ, just as the kingly attire was placed on Christ in the gospel accounts. Law actually adorns Christ for who he is. Haman then leads Mordecai on a horse, shouting aloud, Thus shall it be done to the man to whom the king delights to honor. Paul says specifically in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In picture, Haman leading Mordecai around on that horse and yelling out his proclamation is doing exactly, exactly that. Law is acting as a schoolmaster to the people that the king delights to honor grace through faith in Christ, not the law, because Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. It is by faith in him, not in our deeds, that God delights. 
And to make that point perfectly obvious, Haman is then horrified. He covers his face and he rushes home where his wife and friends tell him that if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Messiah has come. The Savior of Israel has made himself manifest. The dispensation of law is near its end. Chapter 7 opens with the second banquet of Esther. It is when she petitions for her people, the Jews. They are under law and they are destined for annihilation. When the king finds that it is Haman, the law, that has set them for destruction, his wrath is raised. It is a picture of the wrath of God at sin. Paul says in Romans 4.15 that the law brings about wrath. And so there's only one way to remove the wrath, and that is through the death of law. But the law is written, and it cannot pass away. However, its effects can. Again, Christ said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Through Christ's fulfillment of law, man can die to law. With that, the king is told of a gallows made for Mordecai. His response, hang him on it. With that, it says, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. In the death of Jesus came the death of the law for all who believe in him. But you ask, how can you equate Haman's death with Christ? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't if you're stuck under law and can't see beyond your own good efforts in an attempt to please God. But when you pull out your New Testament theological instruction manual, you will find this written in Colossians chapter 2. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, meaning erased the law of Moses for us who believe, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it, meaning the law, out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Haman pictures law, but Christ actually died. It was Christ who was nailed to the cross. The law is nailed to the cross in Colossians chapter 2. It's a picture of Christ being nailed to the cross and the law dying with him. Christ became our Haman, our man under law, if you will. It is no different at all than Christ equating himself with the serpent on the pole in John 3.14. Or Paul saying that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. In the death of his body, the law died with him for all who believe. For all who don't, guess what? Law and thus the enmity remains. This is where the marvelous symbolism of a very, very misunderstood passage in the book of John is explained. It says in John 20, and you're going to go on Facebook or get an email and somebody's going to explain this to you with uh, a parable about what this verse means, and it's wrong. Somebody made something up and they send it out and it gets recycled all the time all over Facebook. You can trash that one. It is not what it's picturing at all. Okay, it, was, it has nothing to do with reality. It's just something somebody made up. But here's the verse. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief. People always get, why does it specify this handkerchief? And they make up these lies and put them on Facebook about this. The handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. As I said, many fanciful explanations have been made up about this, but the truth is revealed in what happened to Haman, 
When he was taken to be executed, they covered his face. The law was about to die. Christ died in fulfillment of the law. When he arose, the face covering was removed and carefully folded. It was an intentional act of the Lord showing that the shame of death through law had been removed for those who trust in him. The people of Israel, the Jews, even to this day celebrate Purim, and they are celebrating the exact opposite of what they think they are celebrating. They curse Haman, they stamp their feet, they howl wildly as his name is read, and yet he simply pictures law that they are still under. Until they come to Christ, Haman will continue to come and to destroy them, to be killed, and to be annihilated because of the ministry of death, meaning the law, that is found in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Why do the Jews celebrate Purim? It is because of what poor signifies. It is a lot, a broken piece, and thus Purim, the plural of poor, signifies broken pieces. Poor means to break, to frustrate, to make ineffectual, annul, bring to naught. This is what Christ has done concerning our covenant with death, according to Paul. Here's what he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing. Think of the poor, bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Jews cling to the law, but it is Christ who has defeated that enemy. The law is annulled, annulled. Check Hebrews 7:18 if you don't believe that in Christ. This is the message of Purim. At the opening of chapter 8, the verse says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. The gospel has prevailed and has received everything that the law possessed. This is certain because no definite article was placed in front of the word house. Instead, it said Beit Haman, or house of Haman. It is comparable to speaking of the house of David, meaning not just a physical house, but everything associated with David. What belonged to Haman, the law, all which made him who he was, transferred over to Esther, the gospel. It is at this time that the king took off his signet ring and he gave it to Mordecai. Gospel has replaced law. Christ has been exalted over the house of law. But immediately Esther falls at the king's feet, mourning in tears for her people. It is at this time in the story that the dispensation of six, grace, finds its true entrance. For a second time, the golden scepter was held out to her. The gospel is evidenced at any time, but it was only truly and fully realized for us at the fulfillment of law. The promise to Abraham leads to the grace through faith 
in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The law cannot annul what has already been determined by God. As Paul says in Galatians, and this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Paul refers to the promise of Abraham as a covenant. He then says that the law cannot make it void. Likewise, the new covenant in Christ does not void the old covenant through Moses, but our death in Christ gives us a new life. In this, we are dead to law and freed from it, and yet we are alive in the new covenant of grace. Believe it or not, this is all seen right here in this little book of Esther. No law of God can be revoked. It must stand, including the law of Moses. But he declares through the gospel that the law is no longer in effect for all who are in Christ. However, the law still has power over all who do not believe. The Jews are not out of the hot water yet. They are sold to destruction by law, even if law is defeated. This is the time that we're living in today. The Jews are under law and they will be destroyed, annihilated, etc. unless they come to Christ. The date of their destruction is set and it cannot be revoked. But Esther, picturing the gospel, petitions the king for her people. There must be a way to save them. And so the king instructs Esther and Mordecai to use their signet authority. This is the reason for including the tribe from which Mordecai was from, Benjamin. It pictures what occurred. If you remember, Benjamin was first named Ben-Oni, son of my suffering, and then Benjamin, son of my right hand. The son of suffering had become the son of the right hand. The signet of authority is his and so he will use that authority in a remarkable way. As I noted in chapter 8, the word tabaat or signet was first used in Genesis 41 verse 42 concerning the signet ring of Pharaoh that was taken from his hand and it was granted to Joseph. It pictured the authority of Christ. After that, the same word was used again to describe the rings for carrying the Ark of the Testimony in Exodus chapter 25. There were four rings on the Ark they picture the four Gospels that reveal the authority of Christ. They are the link between the Old and New Testaments, which are pictured by the two staves which the ark is carried by. And they speak of the coming of Christ and the Christ who has come. They reveal his authority. The power and authority is found in the tabaat, the ring, something Mordecai, picturing Christ, then uses. The word issued by Haman, law, is irrevocable. In this case, it is a word which brings death. And yet another word can be issued which will grant life. The king would not allow one word of reversal of the former command, but yet its power could be annulled through a new command. The signet is the granting of all power and authority to Christ. The law is set, but he can still act without revoking the law. Though it is the dispensation of grace, the focus is solely on the Jews. And chapter 8 goes directly from the time of Christ's first advent to the tribulation period. The whole world pictured by the Persian Empire is set to destroy the Jews, but the Jews are now granted authority to defend themselves. It is a physical battle in Esther, but it is as much picturing a spiritual one. The edict is issued from Mordecai, meaning Christ, and Esther, meaning the gospel. It is the new covenant. At the end of chapter 8, Mordecai went out in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. The colors are reminiscent, if you remember, of those used in the tabernacle. 
They signify the exaltation of Christ, the embodiment of the law, his righteousness, his deity, his purity, and his royal authority granted because of his sacrifice. The Jews of today are at enmity with Christ. They are under law, and the time of their destruction has been decided. But in the Bible, the final books after Paul's letters are directed to them, not to the Gentiles. Hebrews, James, and Peter specifically, and John and Jude to some extent. And then there is Revelation. Chapters 1 through 3 are written to the church. But verses 4-2 through 19-10 are written to the Jews of the end times. The physical destruction which is coming against Israel is a given, but the spiritual revitalization of them in coming to Christ is also. The Jews will prevail over their enemies, but the highlight of the narrative focuses on a very particular group within Shushan, 500 the first day, 300 the second day, and the 10 sons of Haman. The larger numbers were explained in chapter 9, but what was the point of mentioning the death of the 10 sons of Haman, and then there being hanged after they were dead. The answer is exactly the same as that of the hanging of Haman. The ten sons of Haman are what issue from the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. It is Esther, the gospel, who says to hang the ten sons of Haman. It is the gospel of Christ which demands our allegiance to him as the fulfillment of the law, not to the law itself. Hanging Haman left the sons untouched for the Jews. While the church was out pursuing Christ, guess what? The Jews were pursuing the law. Despite issuing from the law, the Ten Commandments are the basis of it. As long as law is the goal and not Christ's fulfillment of it, a spiritual battle will always exist. Israel today, whether observant or secular, finds its foundation in the law, summed up by the Ten Commandments. Until they find their true foundation in Christ, the fulfillment of this law, they will remain at enmity with God. The Ten Commandments sum up the law. Christ embodies the law. It is Christ who died on the cross, and yet Paul said that it is the law, meaning Christ's fulfillment of it, which is nailed to the cross. People try so hard to find a distinction between a moral law and a civil law in the law of Moses. The Bible never, never makes this distinction. One is either under law and under sentence, or they are in Christ, under grace, and free from condemnation. Those are the only two choices that the Bible gives. Chapter 9, symbolizing the tribulation period, is given to lead the Jews to this understanding. Until they come to this realization, tough times lay ahead for them. But that time will end. The new law which is written is that which was prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31. A new covenant was promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah, but it only comes into effect for them as a people when they, as a national group, accept it. If you take the last paragraph of chapter 9 and simply think of what each person is picturing, it opens up the passage. When you think of Esther, think of the gospel. When you read Abihail, think of possessor of might. When you read Mordecai, think of Christ Jesus. The kingdom of Ahasuerus is the world. The second letter is the New Testament. In fact, what is the almost constant greeting in the New Testament epistles? Well, what does it say in Esther chapter 9? And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth. The 127 provinces picture the world. The New Testament epistles have gone out to the entire world, and they almost always begin with the word peace. And they always speak of Christ, who is the truth. 
It is that word in Hebrew, emet, or truth, that we carefully analyzed in the last sermon. It is used 127 times in Scripture, just as there are 127 provinces. The truth of Christ has gone out to the entire world. He is God. He did go to the cross, and he did shed his blood. He was, he is, and he will be. All of this leads to what lies ahead for the Jews as a people. The number seven, millennial reign of Jesus Christ, chapter 10 of the book of Esther. King Ahasuerus pictures God, the ruler of the world. The greatness of Mordecai is the greatness of Christ Jesus, the second member of the Godhead. It is the greatness of Mordecai which is highlighted in verse 2. He was advanced to his position of authority, which was then recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia. There in verse 10-2 is the second and last use of the word parashah in the Bible. Someday the Jews will no longer look to the law for their readings, but to, as it says, the account of the greatness of Mordecai, meaning the glory of Jesus Christ. As I noted, it is the first time that they are called Medea and Persia rather than Persia and Medea. And that is in conjunction with the words, the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia. Persia signifies divisions. Where there were divisions and then the measure, there is now the measure and then divisions. There is a harmony which has been realized which was previously lacking. Thus the name is stated this way to show this. It is a picture of the Bible. God's measure, his canon, the word canon signifies measure. That's what it means. Followed by its divisions, testaments, books, chapters, and verses. In that verse are found the words forming the acrostic, which I read you earlier. They were killed and destroyed, and also the dark anger was cured. Until Myrtle, and the word is here. It shows the power of the law, which exists until the wrath is appeased in Christ. What is really impressive is that the words include the Hadas or Myrtle. This is because it is where the name Hadassah, Esther's Hebrew name, is derived from. There it was at the very beginning of this book. It was used one time and never again, and here it's found in the last chapter as well. Isaiah references the Myrtle twice in Isaiah 41 verse 19 and verse 55 verse 13. In these references, Old Dominion University notes that they then concern the divine establishment of the people in the land in subjection to Jehovah. They then note that as an evergreen fragrant shrub associated with watercourses, the myrtle is a fitting symbol of the recovery and establishment of God's promises. Imagine that. The divine establishment of the people in the land in subjection to Jehovah. That is exactly what has been anticipated since their inception as a people. They have cast off his rule since the very beginning, but the time is coming when they, the Jews, will be subject to him because of Christ. The hadas or myrtle, as it says, is associated with watercourses, just as there were watercourses running through Eden. There will be that again in the millennium. If you don't remember that, go to Ezekiel chapter 47 and read up. The description of the myrtle could not be more perfect, a symbol of the recovery and establishment of God's promises. What is even more unusual is that the myrtle is never mentioned until after the first captivity of the Jews, but then it is specifically said to be used in the building of the tabernacles in Nehemiah 8 verse 15, even though that was never stated in Leviticus at the giving of the law. Thus, the myrtle is again seen to be a picture of restoration. 
understanding this, it is to be noted that the Feast of the Lord, the only Feast of the Lord mandated for the time of the millennium, guess what? It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It makes it all the more amazing that the myrtle is here mentioned in this acrostic. Finally, the acrostic finishes with, and the word is here. The word of God, Christ, will be there, ruling among his people, symbolized by Mordecai, who bears the authority of the king. And then that is topped off with the final acrostics of verse 3. The secret question, how many of them? The answer is completely. This is referring to all who enter the millennium. All of them will be believers in Jesus Christ. And secondly, the last acrostic in order says, Beshuvi Shlomi, or in my return is peace. In his coming, peace is offered, but it was not yet realized for Israel. However, in his return, there will be peace. Isaiah prophesied of it in Isaiah chapter 9. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That is not speaking about the church age, folks. That is speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. This is what is pictured in this final passage of Esther. It is an amazing journey that Israel has been on, and it will soon come to its fulfillment. The Lord has regathered this particular group of people back into their land, and there they shall face their enemies, both physical and spiritual, when they realized what they have missed for so long. It says in the book of Zechariah, they will openly mourn over the path that they had chosen. But when the time of mourning is past, they will rejoice in their deliverance, and they will celebrate in a way that they have never, never celebrated before. The years of trouble, the seemingly never-ending death sentence, and also the times of pride and boasting in their own accomplishments will be behind them. They will find that for those redeemed by Christ, the only boasting to be done is in Him. When they have vanquished their enemies, they won't lay their hands on the plunder. Rather, they will acknowledge that it belongs to the Lord alone. It is His victory and His honor to receive. Therefore, God has also exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember I said Mordecai isn't robbing any glory from Ahasuerus. They complement each other, and that's exactly what Paul says right there. This is the story of man's redemption. From tragic fall to final restoration, it is all about the one who came to make things right again. Esther is a snapshot of this from a time gone by, and yet it is looking forward to a time of glory which lies ahead. How great is this word which reveals such marvelous things. How absolutely wonderful is this book. I'm telling you. We, we serve a God that has taken and shown us time and time and time again that, one, he is really angry at sin, two, that he would deal with that sin problem, and three, that he will lead us to a much better place in the future. And guess what? This book is only dealing with the Jews. We are a part of the dispensation of grace, but this is dealing solely with the Jews. And the important thing for everybody here to remember and every person that's watching online who ever clicks on this video and decides I want to know about the book of Esther is that there is a demonic doctrine, actually a couple of them out there. One of them I told you is dual covenant theology. We have a big pastor out in 
in uh, Texas who teaches this and he preaches it. I'm not going to give his name, but you probably know who I'm thinking about right now. He's very popular. He's very famous, and he teaches dual covenant theology. Jews are saved apart from the law or apart from grace by adherence to the law. The second heresy is that of the Hebrew roots movement. You need to do the things of the law in order to be pleasing to God. You need to observe the Sabbath. You need to not eat pork. You need to not do this, and you need to do that. That is a heresy, and it is bringing countless people that are sitting in churches having no idea what Scripture says into a pit that they are going to regret being in. If they're saved, they're going to stay saved. But if they're not saved, they will never be saved by that type of theology. And the third thing that you need to remember is that the doctrine of dispensationalism is correct. God is not through with Israel. God has not replaced Israel with the church. Now, I'm not going to call that a heresy, but it is very poor theology. So you remember those three things. Stay away from dual covenant theology. Stay away from Hebrew roots movement, reinserting law of any type at all in any way, shape, or form. You lay your deeds at the cross of Christ and live for him. And that is the end of that story. And the third is to be a dispensationalist because this is what God is. He is the author of dispensationalism. We live in a time that God has ordained for us, and he has slowly but surely revealed it. Remember I made the, the arrow from promise to grace? The law is an insert between the two that had to be worked through until Christ came so that he could give us grace. And then law and grace were the main subjects of the book of Esther, but the millennium is chapter 10 of Esther. It's a very important thing for us to hold on to and to understand what God has done for us. And it all centers on one person, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have not received Jesus Christ as Lord, if he is not your Savior, you are not going to go to heaven. You will be eternally separated from God the Father. His goodness, his blessing, his divine mercy cannot be poured upon a person apart from Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Please, today is the day. If you've made it through this sermon then you know what the Bible expects of you. It expects of you to rely on the gospel. Remember what it said? She found grace in his sight. She went to the throne, even when the law was still law, and she said, I need to come and petition you. And he extended the scepter. Jesus Christ is our grace. Please call on Christ. Our closing verse today comes from Romans chapter 3. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. We have something better than the law itself. We establish it in our faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, final thought today. No Hebrew roots movement. No something other than dispensationalism. Okay? And finally, stay away from dual covenant theology. Please remember those three things. Next week is Numbers 1. It's verses 1 through 18. Starting another really great book. Booyah! And yes! It's entitled, A Census in the Wilderness. That'll be our first number sermon. And I'll say this for the last time I will ever say it to you. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. At times you might feel as if he has no great design for you in life, but he has brought you to this moment to reveal his glory in and through you. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a real long poem for you today. Three verses. It's called The Greatness of Mordecai. Then King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea, so we understand. 
Now all the acts of his power and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which advanced him the king, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? Do they not speak of this thing? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen, sending out the good news. Lord God, thank you for your presence that is with us, even when we don't realize that you are there. Because you sent your own son, Jesus, we can know that you truly do care. And Lord God, thank you for this wonderful book, Esther. What a marvel to have studied it. Into every detail possible, we took a look, and to you, our thanks and praise, we now submit. Hallelujah to Christ our Lord. Hallelujah for Esther, a marvelous part of your superior word. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for this book of Esther. Thank you for the wonderful secrets that were hidden in there that have been pulled out by our good friend over in Israel, Sergio, who's been such a blessing to this ministry, who has done so very much to help us with the streaming, with the videos, with the editing, with so many things. And then he's willing to take many long hours of his time out and to research very difficult Hebrew in order to find acrostics which even reveal more of your love for us and your plan for us and the goodness that you have displayed towards us in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for all you've done for us. We glorify you. We give you glory. We give you honor. We give you praise. And we do it all in the exalted name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.